Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning, brothers and sisters. This is the day that the Lord has made. We are going to rejoice and be glad in it. Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 12. Therefore, I, I, I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, word, of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If, it's, if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual favor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be consulted. Do not repay any, anyone evil with, for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it is mine to avenge, I'll repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just want to invite your presence, Holy Spirit. We want to thank you that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we want to thank you that you have your servant Andy here, and you have given him a word. But we want to hear what you have to say to us, personally and individually and collectively, because we are the, your body. We ask that you take over this place. We ask that you take over Andy's mouth. And I pray in the name of Jesus that it is only your voice and what you have to say that will be heard in each and every one of us while we encourage each other in your word. Thank you that your servant Jesus will be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Oh man, thank you. I've got enough paraphernalia, you should probably take that. These are mainly aids for my own memory, no, not for you. I won't be flinging a frisbee at anyone, don't worry. Although you do have an activity to begin with, because we're starting a new series, in honor of that, I thought I would get you to do something. So some of you have turned that square piece of paper into a fan. Now you have massively hindered your chances of achieving this uh, task. Because what I want you to do in five minutes is create an origami butterfly, a la the instructions up there. If you need to try and grab another piece of paper, do. And I'll tell you, I haven't tried this yet, so I'm going to join in with you. Free cup of coffee next week for whoever does this the best from our free cafe. That looks messy. <laughs> what are we up to? Oh no, number four gets tricky, doesn't it? What do you men do now? Has anyone else folded it the wrong way? Built a hat. <laughs> It'll be points for ingenuity if you give up on the butterfly and try something else. Although I realize the risk of paper airplanes flying around the room later is uh, quite high. Turnover. Got lost. I'm on step seven. Anyone else there? What? You're stuck at number four. <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm closer. Hold along the center line. Why would you do that? Oh, oh, I think I'm there. Come on, keep going. John saying, do not throw paper airplanes that people throw up. <laughs> now I'm lost. What on earth do you go from nine to 10? What happens? Right, one more minute. If you finished, hold, hold, hold yours up. I think I've finished, but it doesn't look great. <laughs> I, I be. <laughs> that, that is a duck at best. <laughs> Marilyn, yours looks quite good. <laughs> is anyone there? Is that, is that one of those like weapons? 
a number of people just gone back to fan. <laughs> Ollie, that's not, that's not it. Try throwing it. <laughs> I promise you I didn't practice. Phil Hainsworth, the architect at the back, has achieved something. Very well done. <laughs> All right, you can carry on doing this uh, throughout the sermon if you like. <laughs> if it helps your mind stay active, that is great. I'll tell you a funny story though. Um, last Sunday, we uh, are group of elders were meeting last Sunday up in the tower at the top over there above the sports hall for anyone who hasn't been in the building before we have we've got a lot more rooms back there we are up in a top room um, praying for our members it is quite an enclosed room there were no windows open to the outside enclosed up a tower um, a reasonably large tower and genuinely halfway through our conversation about an hour in all of us were suddenly extremely distracted by a butterfly that randomly started flying around the room and bumping into the windows, and none of us could carry on praying, to be honest. So sorry if you were lower down the list on the members list. You weren't praying for There was a live butterfly randomly in the room fluttering around, and I just thought it was funny because it's coincidental that for a month at least now, we have had a sermon graphic for this series, which is exactly this, the folded origami butterfly versus the live butterfly. Now, I don't know whether it was a sign from God, and to be honest, we don't need such a necessary sign from God that he's with us. We've got his word, which testifies that the Son of God came to this world to be with us and then sent the Spirit into this world to be amongst us. But it was a funny illustration, at least, that I will get onto. But I think we should start in the Word of God and focus on the verses that we are focusing on today, which is the first two verses. We're looking at chapter 12 of Romans and the first two verses. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm just going to dispose of that because the battery's running out. This is the big thing for this series. We want to focus in on what is it to live in the spirit? Because if I can ask you a question, what is it, what was the difference between Phil's origami butterfly, perfectly folded, incredibly lifelike, and the butterfly that was up in the room with us last week? Um, the difference was life. No matter how good and convincing Phil's butterfly is, even if he goes away and paints it perfectly so that from a distance we might actually mistake it for the real thing, the one thing it never will have is life. That butterfly had life 
up in that room, it was flying everywhere it wanted to, except for outside. I, I, I will let you know, Stephen, after all of us heartlessly left the room and left it in there, Stephen did then go and release it into the wild. Now it's probably been eaten by a swan or something. <laughs> but this is what we're focusing on for this series, is life, real life, real authentic spiritual life, not fakery, not inauthenticity, not... Um, Sort of, not the sort of wrong religion that is so often plagues churches, but plagues the world around us. And Paul was very aware that there was a danger. Because although we have, Christians have, the rest of Romans, the first 11 chapters says very clearly, that we who were once dead, like a folded, unfolded piece of paper, had no life in us whatsoever. We who were dead were made alive in Christ by his spirit, that is where God's life comes from. We may have been walking around as if we were alive, but spiritually every one of us is dead until God moves into us and until God breathes on us. That's real life. But Paul is clearly really worried that the Christians that he's writing to are going to revert back to essentially being like this piece of paper, folded shaped, pushed, pulled, twisted into a shape that suits the world but isn't in God's will, isn't God's will for your life, isn't God's purpose, but is actually you're being shaped and twisted into something that fits within a world that doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord, doesn't recognize the real creator as God. Paul is incredibly preoccupied with this and where we've got this from is this verse here it says do not be conformed to this world and that word conformed is the word that you would use for um, some sort of uh, artist or someone making something that they would twist and shape something to look realistic to look lifelike perhaps but actually it's fake and Paul is saying don't be twisted into the shape of this world, but be transformed. And you'll find out later that why we've picked this butterfly themed around that word transform. But what is it that's going on when a Christian steps out into the world, or even into church, Paul is preoccupied that we are going to be shaped, folded. Now what is going on? Well, first of all, I think there's the fingers that are doing the shaping. There are the people or the posts, or the politicians, or the producers, and I was trying to think of a, a, a fifth P. I'd say maybe the paychecks, I'll get to it, the, the people. Now this is obvious, isn't it? You've grown up in a world surrounded by people, often that is family and friends, teachers, people of influence around you who speak to you, and either they will tell you what to do, and they will tell you what you should believe, and they will tell you how you should live, or they will just show you. They will either give you verbal instructions or implicit instructions just by the way that they live, that either you should follow them and you should mimic them. So there's people that have had influence on you. They're shaping you. They're twisting you in different ways. And then there's posts. Now, it would have been different for the Apostle Paul, but nowadays, none of us can deny the incredible power of social media and social media posts. 
to really, really affect the way that you think. Incredibly edited, curated messages that get a very simplistic reaction from us, just thinking, oh, that's the way I should live, or that's the way I should look, or that's what I should be reading, or that's the cause that I should be siding with. This is the way that I should be. Simply from a few small, very small pixels on your phone. Scrolling through, but suddenly that radically shapes how people vote, where people go, how they spend their money. These fingers just folding, each one of us, just slowly, bit by bit, stage by stage. Or politicians. Now, this is different in different countries. I think in the UK, our politicians like to think they have a bit more power over us than they do, but still, they can affect policies. We will come to a general election, and there'll be a lot about how the politicians are going to shape the population by the policies that they're going to bring in. But in some countries, it's much more severe. In um, the Open Doors prayer letter for this month, there's just a small article about in China at the moment, in the Zhejiang province, the authorities have demanded that all religious venues display signs outside of their buildings saying, love the Communist Party, love the country, love the religion. It's explicit, isn't it? In some countries, in many of the countries that people here represent, politicians have huge amount of power to fold you into a certain shape, huge amount of influence on your life. And then there's the Producers. Now, this is me being a bit silly, but from a background of documentary making, the producers behind television programs have an awful amount of impact on us. The types of programs that are shown on TV, on Netflix, on streaming platforms, but also the message that those shows are putting out is hardly ever explicit, is it? It's always just there in the story. And if we're not, if we haven't got our heads screwed on, if we're just sitting back using Netflix to simply entertain us, we're not going to realize how much it's also shaping us, how much it's also folding us into certain ways of thinking or the certain ways that we should respond to different things. And then that final one I just thought of, paychecks. Well, many people, especially in London, are, the lifestyle you will live is de dependent on the paycheck you're going to receive. How much you'll be paid for this or that, has a huge impact and often comes first in your mind before what does God want for my life? What's his will for my life? So these are the fingers, but the fingers are sort of all connected together as a hand and that's the society that you live in. But I'm quite interested in the arm, the sort of, in my case, slightly shapeless, long thing that extends further than the hands and the fingers. And I'd say this is sort of the generations or the culture. Because the ideas that we believe nowadays, the ideas that are in schools, the ideas that are out there in the media, have not come from nowhere. They haven't suddenly emerged in the last two years. They have trickled down over centuries of thought. Philosophers in universities had an idea, and it gained a bit of traction, and then it got into other groups, and then it was suddenly brought down into the masses. It's a bit like in the F1 racing, you know, the car racing. Often the technological advances that happen in F1, 10 years later, feature in our day-to-day -day cars. 
And that's often the case. There's ideas that seep through culture and eventually end up controlling the fingers that are folding you. But these ideas, these sort of generational things, can also just be in your family. Some people often remark or notice that the way they behave is a lot like how their mother or their father behaves. And that is because that's how their mother and father, and you go back and go back, and you can even call these generational curses or generational influences where cycles repeat themselves amongst families. And people are so shaped by this, but it extends further and further back. But then what's the body? The body, the Bible says, are the powers and principalities of the air. These are spirits of the air that have always been around and have shaped human societies. We can't see them, we can't grab them, we can't touch them, but they are the mobilizing forces that are shaping everything. And then at the head of all of this is the one that Jesus calls the God of this world. Some call him Satan, some call him the devil. Jesus referred to him as the God of this age or the God of this world. The created being who was created as an angel to look after humanity and raise them up into their full inheritance so that one day they would inherit the world. But he didn't fancy the idea of them inheriting the world. He wanted the world. And so on day one almost, he folded, shaped the minds of the first humans to try and seize from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to define good and evil for themselves, to not trust in God. He folded them into a shape of the world and they succumbed to his power and he with them have made an attempt to create a world that doesn't need God anymore. And we live in that world. That is world 1.0 if you like. Jesus is creating world 2.0 and the two are currently colliding. But Paul is very concerned that Christians, though saved, though full of the Spirit, now alive, they're not resembling a dead thing that will just fall to the ground. They now have the life of the Spirit inside of them, are actually submitting themselves to the folding, shaping powers of the world like they used to. And I wonder why that is, but in our case, I have a sneaking suspicion is because the head of this world is sneaky. He is the sneakiest of all. He is cunning. And the Apostle Paul says that he can appear as an angel of light. That means an angel of everything good, a representative of good things, of progress, of good influence. The angel of light can move into any situation and create good people that don't need God. Uh, and there's a lot of good out there, isn't there? This week, we received a little letter through our door. It just said Olive on the front, which is the name of our eldest daughter. No um, stamp at all, so it's clearly someone who knew us. We opened it up not knowing, thinking it was maybe someone from here. None of you have sent us a card. Um, <laughs> and it says, Olive, good luck on your big girl adventure at big school. We can't wait to hear all about reception. 
Lots of love, Erin, James, Charlotte, and Milo. Milo's the dog of our next door neighbors. Just out of the blue, these were young mid-20s carrying on with their lives, an incredibly kind thing for them to do. I have many a time missed giving my wife a card at the right times. And these guys far surpass us in their goodness. But they don't worship God. And I think they don't see the need for it. I was, the re this is literally for aid de memoir, so that I remember, at Frisbee this week. <laughs> I was having a conversation, because uh, none of you believe that I'd actually play this properly. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend there. Um, and we were talking about, I'd been to see an interview earlier in the week at the Barbican, and the guy doing the interview was called Tom Holland, who's recently written a book on the, uh, called Dominion, on the influence of Christianity on the West, that the West relies on Christianity, it's bu built on its foundations. Um, and this guy at Frisbee, my friend, um, said, oh yeah, I listened to his podcast. Um, he's quite a Christian, isn't he? He's quite Christian. And I, I responded and said, well, actually, thankfully, he knows enough to know that he isn't a Christian. And my friend said, well, what do you mean? What's Christianity about then? I said, well, it's about the cross. And he changed subject very quickly. <laughs> because Christianity isn't simply about being a good enough person, about being a better person. Think of this illustration, if you will. There's a story that all of the Gospels tell, a, a story that all four of them tell in slightly different ways, but you will probably know it, even if you don't come to church very often, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus turned a small pat lunch of bread and fish uh, into an enormous feast for a field full of people. And it says in Mark's gospel that these people had come for the teaching of Jesus. Jesus had been teaching them throughout the day. You can imagine, pretty good teaching. I imagine it was the Beatitudes that we get in Matthew and extra, various things that he's been teaching them over a long period of time. And then they see this incredible miracle in front of them, the power of God. And they get to taste of the miraculous food that Jesus has multiplied. So unsurprisingly, after a day of good teaching, good food, and a great experience, they want to carry that on. So the next day, it says, they went and found Jesus again. But this time, Jesus has turned the heat up just slightly because his teaching turns more about himself. And he says, it's the will of God for every human being to believe in me, he says. That people would know eternal life by knowing and believing in me. And that started to turn some of their stomachs a little bit. They thought they were just getting a free brunch again. And then Jesus amps it up even more and says, if you want to follow me, if you want to have any part in this eternal life, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, for them, that is an extremely unsavory moment that they don't want any part of. And so many of them, it says, many of his disciples turned away at that moment and walked away. Just get into the head of one of them immediately repulsed by what Jesus has said and thinking, I just can't be part of this anymore, turning away. But as they turn away, they start to think, well, maybe, maybe he's got more for me to hear. Maybe, shall I turn back? And then you can imagine the angel of light appearing 
with an arm around this person's shoulder and saying, don't feel bad, don't feel guilty. Look, you've heard enough to be a very good person now. Let's just go back to your neighborhood. Let's go back to your people and be a good neighbor, be an even better neighbor for the people around you. Just put Jesus' teaching into practice, and surely at the end of all that, God is going to approve of what you've done. He's going to be pleased, isn't he? And the person is snatched away from finding out where Jesus was leading his disciples. But compare that to Peter. Peter, who Satan, the angel of light, really wanted to snatch away from Jesus. And Jesus said, I prayed for you. That's the only reason, Peter, you are still standing. Peter, following Jesus, and Jesus, I'm not surprised, to be honest, hearing some of what Peter was like. Jesus says, this is your moment to leave as well, you know. But Peter turns around to him and says, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But do you get the logic of that statement? Jesus has said, shove off. And he says, no, because you've got something that I want that you haven't yet given me. You have the words of eternal life. I haven't yet got them, so I don't feel like I can go away yet. I'm going to keep following you until you give me eternal life. Until you give me what I'm following you to find out where is this place of eternal life. And Peter, who kept on messing up, I'm sure lived a far worse life than the people who went back and put Jesus' teaching into practice. Followed Jesus all the way to the place of eternal life. And where was it? It was the place of Jesus' death. It was the place of God's mercy. I'm going to say it was the mercy seat of God. Now, what is a mercy seat? This is an Old Testament idea introduced in Exodus as God's people are being told how to create the tabernacle, which was the tent in which God would live amongst God's people. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, which would be his throne, and that was meant to be carried around and placed in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the camp. This was symbolically the presence of God with his people, where God would sit, where God would be. And the mercy seat was two and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits long, a solid piece of gold with cherubim, like angels, carved into it, looking down with their wings over like that. And that was where God would sit on the top of their wings. And likely his feet would be on the mercy seat, the actual platform bit. Now what was this mercy seat meant to represent? Because all of this sacrificial stuff is meant to teach us something about what would come. The shadows of a future glory. Now in some way, if I'm gonna be really um, irreverent, the mercy seat was a bit like a bin lid, a lid on the top of your waste bin. What is the point of a bin lid? A bin lid simply covers over all of the rubbish inside the bin and stops the smell coming out as if there was no rubbish in the house. Magic. The bin lid comes down and so no one, all of your guests, cannot see all of the filth that you have produced as a family. 
And when you've got two young children, that is extra relevant. This mercy seat, which in the Hebrew and then in the uh, translated Greek, sometimes is just translated covering. It's just a covering. It's just a lid. Because what was inside? Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was the law given to Moses. Now, why was that kept in the middle of God's camp? It wasn't as a certificate of achievement for God's people. The law was written in tablets and then stored in the Ark of the Covenant, not to remind God's people of how good they've always been, but to remind them as a witness of how they have failed time and time again to live in the way that God wants them to live. It is symbolically in a spiritual sense, the garbage. It is evidence of the rubbish that all of us have contributed to this world, that the Israelites each had contributed, the uncleanness that they had brought into the camp, how they had made the world a slightly worse place. It's got nothing to do with their good behavior. I imagine many of them were very good. But all of this was about what you do with the bad stuff that all of us bring into this world. And the merciful thing of the bin lid is it was stopping the angels from seeing the garbage. They were looking down and there was just this golden lid stopping them from being able to see the law of God witnessing against the Israelis, the God's people at the time. But not only that, because like I said, it was, the, it was likely the footstool for where God sat in the center of the Holy of Holies. It was a seat, but hear this, it wasn't designed as a judgment seat or a throne of judgment. It was designed as a throne of mercy. When God sat in the middle of his people, he wanted to show them mercy. So he created this ridiculous game in order to do that. Once a year, a high priest was allowed to fumble his way through the curtain in a cloud of incense. I shouldn't have done that right at the edge of the steps. Um, fumble his way into the Holy of Holies in this cloud of incense. And he was meant to, it says in Exodus, commune, meet with God. But the only way that that meeting would go well is if he brought in the blood of an innocent animal, a spotless animal. And he would bring in the blood and paint it on the mercy seat as evidence. Evidence of what? This is where it gets into a, a, a sort of silly play game that the sacrificial system was designed to be. I'm not being blasphemous at this point. This is how the book of Hebrews describes things. The high priest would come in, and what did that blood represent? The blood represented the life of God's people, the Israelites. The blood represented life. The sacrifice was on their behalf, and the blood showed them to be innocent. A bit like if you were, um, if you were in a lineup and someone thought that you were guilty of a crime, and then you did your fingerprint test and discovered it wasn't you, it was someone else. 
the, the high priest would go in with that speck of blood painted on the mercy seat, and God would look at that and go, oh, wow, my people have lived faithfully this whole year. That was representative of their life being placed before the throne of God and saying, this is how we have behaved. Now, can you see, it was all made up. It's a little bit like a child coming to you with some fake food and expecting you to pretend to eat it and enjoy it. God was doing that for thousands of years with his people, with the sacrificial system. Mmm, tastes good, thank you. Well done for living well. And then he would bless the people with life and abundance if the high priest brought in this blood and presented it before him. He would bless them with abundance and life for the next year. He would show them the blessings of the covenant, the agreement that he'd had with them, rather than the curses. But it was all a made-up game because it was all waiting for something much greater. Now, my kids come and we play that game where they give me a fake aubergine or a fake celery or something, and I'm, mm, thank you for it. I'm waiting for the day when they actually cook me a proper meal that I can enjoy. <laughs> and God was the same. He was waiting for the day. The prophets say it all through. God knew, everyone knew if they read the scriptures, that the whole sacrificial system didn't really please God. It was a contrite heart. It was a genuine human life lived in honor for God that would bring him pleasure. He was just pretending until there was a sacrifice where the blood was poured out on the mercy seat of God, and it was the real deal. It was the genuine human life lived for the full glory of God with no corruption, no sin tainting it whatsoever. That blood was pure, and that blood was brought as a sacrifice for all the people. Where Jesus led Peter, as Peter followed him, not necessarily knowing where this place of eternal life would be, Jesus took him and the few that stayed with him to the cross at Calvary, which became the new mercy seat of God. It says in Romans which is the book we're looking at, back in chapter 3. And if anyone wants to join us, we've got, um, we're going to be doing a Bible study through Romans on Sunday evenings. You can have a look at our website forward slash read. You can find the Zoom details. It'll start tonight. But here in Romans, it says this in chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even if you've lived a really good life in your neighborhood, you've sinned, you've brought garbage into the world, you've created uncleanness, you've made the world a slightly worse place by certain actions that need dealing with, not just covering over by, oh, well, I, I did more good stuff than bad. That's not the point. That's never been the point of the Christian religion, at least. Might be a version of religion that you believe, but not this one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We could get more into that. But here's the thing. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, a horribly awkward word has been used there. It's a powerful word if you understand it. But actually, 
the likelihood is, because of this, this word behind propitiation here is only used twice in the New Testament. Once here, once in Hebrews. In Hebrews, it's used to describe the Ark of the Covenant and to describe the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It is possible that that is the reference that Paul is making here. Whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. The high priest had to go in, paint some blood on that mercy seat, and then by faith leave and believe that God was now going to be blessing his people rather than cursing them, which was what they deserved. We believe in Jesus, and now we live by faith. We receive all of these blessings of God by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, or patience, he had passed over former sins. Well, that means he just overlooked former sins for many years. He'd played pretend for so many years, until finally he put forward the real mercy seat, the real place where God communes with his people. Can I say, the place of transformation. It is the source of eternal life. It is the source of the Holy Spirit. Is it the mercy seat? That's why Paul, I think, starts chapter 12 by saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. This series we're about to enter into, chapter 12, is coming down the mountain of God's glorious truths and what he's done in the gospel. And it gets into a lot of how to live differently. But please, don't ever detach that stuff from the mercy seat of God. We are meant to offer ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices upon that altar because we don't have to die for our sins anymore. We can live in the goodness of God. We can live in the Spirit now because Jesus has died for us and his blood has been presented at the mercy seat of God. It was poured out at the cross on our behalf and God now shows us incredible favor and blessing. If you don't start at the mercy seat of God, you will create a different religion that looks similar, but could well be curated by the angel of light. He can create every kind of lifestyle. He can fold anyone into any kind of a person that looks lifelike, looks impressive, but he cannot, he's allergic to it, Take anyone to the mercy seat of God. That's where the Spirit of God leads us right now. To the mercies of God. If your Christian life doesn't start there, it's not a Christian life. It's something else. You may be a good person, but you haven't received the mercies of God and you're not fully alive in the Spirit. You don't have that life in you. That is what Paul is so preoccupied with. So just two very short applications. Can I encourage you to unfold your life entirely upon the mercy seat of God? Every way, and this is going to take time. This is why it's 
worth coming back week on week to hear the different ways that God wants you to unfold because you're not going to be able to do it all today, are you? Unfold, just small bit first, that funny little bit that kept it in place. Unfold that. Unfold your relationships. Unfold the way that you spend your money. Unfold the way that you treat employers or employees or colleagues. Unfold the way that you parent. Unfold the way that you live in society in London and chase after certain things versus other things. Unfold it all and place it on the mercy seat of God. And don't wriggle off. That's the problem, it says in one commentary, with living sacrifices. They like to wriggle off. Every week, that's why we come back together, to get back on the mercies of God. That is the source of your eternal life. So that's the place that you should live from. Don't start living just to be a good person. Live by the mercies of God and he will transform you. That's the reason why we called this what we did. Because it says be transformed, which is the Greek word metamorphosis. That's the moment when a caterpillar pretends to die and then comes alive again as a butterfly. That is the place of transformation. And one final thing, band, if you come up and you'll lead us in just extended worship now. It says here, this was eye-opening to me at least, present your bodies, individual bodies, as a living sacrifice. It doesn't say present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then it says about the sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. You know, the holy and acceptable sacrifice offering to God is not simply all of us living our individual Christian lives. This makes it very clear to the early church, you each have your bodies, which represents everything about you. All that you do, everything you touch, everything you think, everything you feel, your bodies, offer all of them as one living sacrifice which is holy and pleasing. That is why we gather together, and we'll find out in two weeks' time why we use our gifts for the benefit of others. The holy and acceptable offering to God is a church of many different people all coming together on the mercy seat of God. That is the reason that we gather together. It is the very essence of who we are. That's where the Spirit of God dwells amongst us, a joint sacrifice together. Whatever part you are, I feel like I'm maybe the hoof of the bull that gets sacrificed. Some of you might be the beef cheek, some the ear, who cares? It's only a holy and pleasing sacrifice to God as we do it together, as we come together like this. So let's come together in worship, come together in our gifts right now, come together in song. Let's stand. And I'll just pray this prayer that Stephen, this doxology almost that Stephen read at the end of chapter 11 in our prayer meeting before this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him? 
that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.